0: Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you again this week. We thank the Lord for blessing, protecting, shepherding us, by bringing us together to be fed by His Word. Let me invite you to open with me to John chapter 6. We begin a new chapter this morning as we continue to walk our way through John's Gospel. What we have here as we begin this chapter is what's known as a, a narrative gap. Between the end of chapter 5 and what we're starting with here in chapter 6, some things have happened that John does not record in his gospel uh, and that we have in, in, uh, in some of the other three. Uh, at the end of John 5, if you remember last week, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He had been there and, and the great uh, discussion and interaction had taken place between him and the leaders in that city. But when chapter 6 begins... Jesus has already relocated. He's gone back to the region of Galilee. In fact, as we'll see shortly, quite a lot has happened, actually, behind the scenes as John now picks up the narrative flow here in chapter 6. And given the significance of what's about to happen in our text this morning, we might forgive John for choosing to jump ahead just a bit here. Because what comes next is the feeding of the 5,000. A miracle that we're maybe too familiar with, with the result that we can easily fail to appreciate what exactly we're seeing as we read this. I hope that we can be helped to change that this morning. Apart from the resurrection of our Lord, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. That alone should tell us something. Uh, Listen to what one man wrote concerning this, J.C. Ryle, it may be a name that you're familiar with. He said this about the feeding of the 5,000 here. He says, some early writers, not without justice, call this the greatest miracle that our Lord ever wrought. Perhaps we are poor judges of such points and little able to make comparisons, but it is certain that on no other occasion did our Lord manifest so clearly his creative power. Those are some strong claims, aren't they? Is that how you have thought about the feeding of the 5,000? In terms as as strong as that? What what is it that would have led others in the past to have thought of it as perhaps Jesus' greatest miracle? Or for Ryle himself to say that, that there is no other occasion where his creative power was so clearly manifest. We have some things to behold this morning to be sure. Uh, To begin, let's hear John's account. I'll read down to the end of verse 15 from John chapter 6. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John continues the narrative in this way. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are three things for us to consider here as we're working our way through this passage. The first thing we'll see is what we have seen every time John begins a new narrative section. We're going to hear the details of setting that he gives to us so that we can understand what takes place. So first we'll examine the setting of this event in the first nine verses. Second thing we'll see is the miracle itself. That's in verses 10 to 13. And then third, what we'll do is we'll pay particular attention to the people's response to this miracle, verses 14 and 15. And there we'll be looking at how their response informs us and how it leads us to answer the question of Jesus' intent. What did Jesus intend by this demonstration? He's going to make that very clear in the sermon he preaches uh, not long after this, but we can gain a great deal... Uh, As to his intent, when we think about how they responded in this instance. Before we do that, though, let's begin by looking at the setting that John gives to us. Verse 1 has Jesus, it says, going away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which sounds as if he starts chapter 6 on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's exactly right. This side is the west side, Uh, the other side is the east side. So they're taking a boat from west to east, and especially going northeast, Uh, and they wind up in the countryside there right on the coast of uh, the northeast coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, uh, Mark chapter 6 helps us with some of this as well. It's going to be interesting going forward. A great deal, the the great majority of John 1 to 5 gave us accounts and events that are not recorded in the other Gospels. But that now begins to change as we focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee especially. So we'll be able to gain a lot of help and insight from some of the other Gospels. And for this passage, Mark 6 is where we will look in a number of places. Uh, Mark, 6, Mark 6 makes clear to us that Jesus has indeed returned to the region of Galilee since the end of John chapter 5. But it gives us even more than that. We learn there that Jesus has been, since the end of last week, he has been going around the Galilean countryside teaching. He's been going to various villages. And in fact, we find there that a piece of that time involved Jesus sending out the 12 in pairs to do the same, to teach on his behalf, to uh, even to do the works of Jesus with the authority of his name. Part of why they do what they do this morning, part of why they withdraw across the Sea of Galilee is because they are all worn out and in need of some seclusion and some rest. This is what we read in Mark 6.30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. That's what's happening here in John 6 as they cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and the disciples. That helps us to notice the end of verse 3 in our text. That this whole interaction with the crowd actually began as an opportunity for fellowship and rest between Jesus and his disciples. See again the first three verses of our passage. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So just notice that by way of setting. As this begins, he is sitting in a private moment of rest with them. There are a couple more details of setting that we need to notice before we get to the events of the miracle. One is to dwell for just a moment on the statement in verse 2 that it was a large crowd following Jesus. We see it again in verse 5 as they draw near, that Jesus, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. This is a large crowd coming his way. Verse 10 will tell us that it is 5,000 men Strong, And that's the word for males there. As this large group is counted by the number of males in it, it's not uncommon for them to do. Matthew 14, 21 makes it explicit that that's what's happening. It tells us there that those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So some speculate a group of as much as 20,000 or more. I suspect 20,000 is probably a bit... Much That would assume a woman for every man and multiple children. It's not necessarily pure family groups coming out there, but it's certainly a great deal more than 5,000 who are coming. And that has us primed then to be able to think and try to visualize this, not just in terms of the extent of the miracle, the extent of the food that is produced here in this miracle, but also to think in terms of the extent of the witness of Jesus' power here. In terms of what is being witnessed, this is something far surpassing what has happened yet in this gospel. We'll think more about that later as well as we consider the miracle itself. But look as well at verse 4 as we're getting our bearings here and and getting the details that John intends us to have. Verse 4's detail is a curious one. John inserts this. He says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Maybe you're like me. I've assumed at points that, well, this is explaining the size of the crowd. This happens often in Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of people there, and that's because he's doing what he does often surrounding Jewish festivals. So large groups travel to Jerusalem, and there he's teaching. And the fact of the feast or of the the festival accounts for the large size of group. But you have to remember, they're not in Jerusalem here. People are not coming to the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee in droves because it's the Passover. So he's not giving us this detail in verse 4 to explain the large crowd there. It doesn't explain the large crowd. This is a detail in John's hands here as he's telling us the story that really does two things and both very important. One thing it does just very simply is it it does give us an ongoing sense of chronology. John loves to do this. We'll see it all the way through his gospel. He gives us little markers of time so we know what's going on. He's very helpful to us as we're working and reading. This is the second Passover that's mentioned. So now we know that it has been a calendar year since Jesus cleansed the temple back in chapter 2. That sort of thing is very helpful for us as we're progressing. But there's a more important reason for John to mention this detail of the Passover. It's not a chronological reason. It's a theological reason. There is a reason that Jesus never passes up a Passover to make massive gestures concerning his own identity. The first Passover had Jesus calling the temple in Jerusalem, My Father's house. And claiming the temple uh, to, uh, claiming himself to be the temple in a, in a sense, in a typological way. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking of the temple of his own body. He claims these identities, these connections in, in God's plan for his people between the temple in Jerusalem and his own body. He didn't, he chose the Passover to make such a statement. The third Passover that will come. In Jesus' ministry, how will he celebrate that? Well, he'll celebrate it by hanging on a cross outside of the city gates, dying for the sins of his people as the Passover lamb. But in our passage this morning, we have the second of the three. And Jesus is going to begin to remind people on this Passover of another connection it's a connection between the Passover and the Exodus. Think of the original Passover in the Old Testament. The Passover in Egypt is also what sparks the exodus, the the, uh, rescuing of God's people out of their bondage as the people enter the wilderness and must continue then to depend for their lives on God's willingness to provide. Now when they did that then, when God led them out of their bondage and into the wilderness, what was the quintessential demonstration of his provision for them in the wilderness. He provided in many ways, but the the defining moment has to have been his giving them manna to eat in Exodus chapter 16. And that is exactly what Jesus is going to bring back to their minds on this day. We'll see that abundantly as we look at the implications of this miracle, but the last detail for us to notice before we come to the the action itself, is to notice the question that Jesus asks Philip in verses 5 and 6. Look again at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, there would not be anything strange about Jesus discipling one of his disciples individually and at random. I'm sure there were a number of those sorts of of one-to-one question and, and challenge and instruction that happened in the course of his ministry. But I don't think that that's what's happening here. I don't think that there's something random about his turning to Philip and asking this question. What's happening is even more practical than that. Philip is from here. Philip is from Bethsaida, which is almost certainly the nearest town to where they're standing right that moment. He grew up in this area. And he's the one that's natural for Jesus to turn to of the 12 and to ask, hey, where should we go to get bread for this large crowd? Now, the question it tells us is something of a test here, which is to say Jesus is not actually interested in buying bread, and he's not actually giving voice to some sort of an uncertainty in himself. He knows what he is about to do. But in asking this question, he creates the occasion for someone to acknowledge to out there in the open, to the disciples, to their very ears, for someone to acknowledge just how impossible it would be to provide for this group of people. There are no natural means available to meet the needs of this group of people as they come. Philip replies that 200 denarii would not be enough to give even a bite to each of these individuals. And of course what he's meaning to do is simply to make clear how unfeasible it would be to even try. I don't think he's doing any deep mathematics in his head when he gives this number. He simply replies by saying seven months wages wouldn't be enough to feed a crowd like this. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted him to say before he invites the crowd to take a seat. Now, the final piece that sets the scene for us here comes in verses 8 and 9. You see there what happens. Andrew, one of his disciples, brings forward and mentions a boy he has come across who has come with dinner in hand. There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. It's important for us I think in trying to visualize this to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about a young boy that has his dinner in hand. These are not loaves like we buy at the store, long, uh, large things. These are almost something more like cakes, little cakes, large enough that you you can break them and share because Jesus is going to break them and they're going to collect pieces when this is all said and done. But loaves, can be misleading to us about what what this thing is that we're talking about. There are five of these for this boy. And to supplement with some protein, he has two fish. These are a small supplement to the meal. The, the word itself is a word that implies a small size. It's a diminutive form of the word. And for that reason, what is what is generally understood here, and what one man described it as, is that the small fish were probably pickled fish to be eaten as a side dish with the small cakes. Now again, I think that helps us with the visuals here. They're not going to be handing out big raw fish or even big prepared fish. Uh, They're going to be handing out cakes and little pre-prepared fishies that you grab between two fingers and drop into your mouth. There are five of those cakes, and there are two of the little fishies. And this is what this boy has in his lunch pail. And these are the details that were given coming into verse 10. And with these details in mind, John now just recounts for us what exactly took place in verses 10 to 13. The massive crowd is organized and sits in what verse 10 explains is an expansive, grassy area, must have been. Quite an expansive area. And after Jesus gives thanks for the food, he begins, it says, he begins distributing them. Mark tells us that he began giving them to the disciples to set before the people, as the people have sat in groups, groups of 50s and 100s. So this is what we're, what we're imagining. Jesus is distributing these to the disciples, perhaps more than the 12 disciples. There's a large number of disciples And those disciples are distributing them to these groups. Now, the question that that it produces in my mind is, where did the miracle take place? Like, where did it take place? And it doesn't tell us. I I have some speculation. I have a particular way I envision it. uh, And the scriptures do not give us those details. But my, the way I envision this is that what's happening is Jesus has taken these offerings, the five loaves and the two fish, and he has collected them together in a basket. Remember, they're about to fill 12 baskets full of scraps of leftovers. They've got a bunch of baskets there. I guess that's a common, I don't know, but they have a bunch of baskets. Jesus takes the food, puts it in a basket, prays for God's blessing, and then he begins distributing from that basket to the other baskets, which are then carried to the groups of people and passed around the circle. He's taking from that, putting it into the others. The disciples are distributing them. And it seems to me, especially given the size of the crowd that we're talking about, that what's happening here is that a miracle is happening in two places. It's happening at Jesus' own hands as he keeps Reaching into this basket with five loaves and two fishies, and his hands keep bringing food out. It just keeps coming out. But I I suspect the multiplication is also happening in those baskets as they go around, and they keep failing to run empty. You see, this does not take long at all to be happening before people start to look around and look inside the basket that they're holding. The eighth disciple to come up and receive a basket from Jesus' hands has to be looking over his shoulder and 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 wanting to watch Jesus' hands more carefully in the distribution. There has to be an emerging of murmuring and give me that what and confusion as this just goes on and on and on and on for tens of thousands of people. It doesn't take them long to perceive that something is happening. And so the crowd eats. And it eats, and they go back. They're still passing it. It, They eat, verse 11, as much as they wanted. And when they're finished, the disciples go about and collect leftovers. Twelve baskets worth of food. John only mentions bread leftovers. But Mark tells us that there were fish leftovers too. My friends, 15,000... People. The entire countryside, we've seen Jesus' ministry up to this point. We've heard the rumors of events in Jerusalem beat Jesus to these other regions by the time he gets there. The whole place is abuzz with what's happening through this man. They have all heard of him. They've heard that he was there. And this mass comes together to see him themselves and to hear him, to be taught by him. And he is able to feed All of them. There is none of them who come to him that day and who have this need to be met that Jesus is not able to meet. He meets it for all of them. And when he's finished meeting it for all of them, there is a great deal left over. In other words, a part of the picture he is giving here is not simply his ability to meet this need, but it's the reality of the abundance of the thing, the abundance of what he is offering. That is clearly a part of his intended display. It's what he's done all all the way through this gospel. In John 2, it was 180 gallons of wine. In John 4, it was a never-ending well of water. In John 5, at the healing, it wasn't a sinus infection or chronic arthritis that was healed. It was a 38-year paralysis that was not only reversed but the man's body, equipped in such a way that he could jump up, pick up his load, and walk away. And now here, it's five barley cakes and two fishies into a full, satisfying meal for thousands and thousands and thousands. When Jesus will say three chapters from now, I have come to give life abundantly, he meant it. And what we find is that that's the very point he's been making everywhere he has gone. I hope by now, if you've been with us through this study, you're starting to hear those words a little differently. When Jesus says, I have come to give life, we've spent so much time understanding from this very gospel, what is the life that Jesus has come to bring? And how it goes so far beyond just mere continued existence. It goes so far beyond that. And how all of the physical things he is doing is bearing witness to the fact that in him is life. And here we see another example. That he comes and when he gives life, everywhere he gives life, he gives it abundantly. Abundance is what we see here. Now we turn as we come to verse 14 to the people's reaction to this. And we see several things. Let's read again verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There are at least two things to notice here. I think we can organize them into two. One is their response itself, what's meant in what they say here. But then also what that response says about them and about how they think. They respond in this way, verse 14, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They make an immediate connection to the Old Testament a connection that they had always long been waiting for to be fulfilled. It's the promise of a coming prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses said these words back there, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. They've been waiting for that promise to come. And what's interesting to me is how how much they have gotten right here. In making this connection. That passage does speak of Jesus. One of the roles that he will play for his people. Is that of the prophet. Sent from God. And we can even go further than that. Given the fact. That Jesus is about to use this event. This miracle he's just worked. Of giving them food. He's about to use that as an illustration. In his own sermon. That's coming up later in this chapter. Called the bread of life discourse. And when he does that, he's going to tie what he's doing here to the manna that's given in the wilderness. In light of that, there is no question that the connection they've made with Deuteronomy 18 is the connection they were supposed to make. He wanted them to make this connection in their minds. That's amazing to me. But see, herein lies perhaps one of the more important things for us to understand in this entire story. In this entire account, once they get it, once they get that he's drawing a connection between himself and Moses, then everything comes down to how they have been reading their Bibles. Do they understand the true problem? that the Old Testament has been teaching them about, that their own history has been bringing up to them and presenting? Do they understand the true solution to that problem that God has been promising to provide? When Here's an example. When Moses gave them circumcision, did that remove what was separating them from God so that now by virtue of being people of the circumcision, they can rejoice in their, in their blessed status before before their God and their safety in, in the perpetuity of his, of his program? Is that what they were receiving when God gave them circumcision through Moses? Or did Moses himself tell them that that physical circumcision should point them to their true need of a heart circumcision that only God was going to give them? Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is exactly what Moses told them. How were they thinking about this sign, about this rite? Well, we see that in the New Testament as the Pharisees speak so confidently about their connection to Moses and about their uh, approval in the sight of God because they are those of the circumcision. We hear it in Paul's interactions with the Jews. When Moses brought them out of Egypt and to the, to the promised land, not into, but to the promised land, what were they supposed to think? Were they supposed to think they had found their true home? That they had found the liberation that they truly needed? Or was it all always pointing to a deeper need of rescue and a liberation from a deeper bondage that Moses was not providing? It all comes down to how they have been reading their Old Testament. Do not forget what we saw last week. Do not think it a coincidence on John's part that John just came here after finishing describing Christ's words of condemnation to the religious leaders in Jerusalem when he said, Moses will be the one accusing you on the last day. Because if you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you have not believed what Moses wrote, how can you believe my words? Now, this is not Jerusalem. This is the Galilean countryside on the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee. So how will they have been reading Moses? Well, we can tell by the way they sought for Jesus to emulate what they had in Moses. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. I mean, think of it. The response after this display. Think about their desire to come and take him by force. It literally says that. To seize him and to take him by force, thrusting him into a position of king over their political situation. This event, right in front of them, right in their own mouths, has not brought them to a place where they fall down before this man. Where they worship him, where they trust him in not just his miraculous ability, but his wisdom, his leadership, where they trust him to lead them and to guide them, it has not brought them to that place. He is not what John the Baptist said he was. He's not here to take away their sin. He is here to be their solution to a particular political situation. Just like Moses was. who's Moses? He's the one who rescued us out from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt, and brought us to our own freedom. See, their whole focus, as they live out their religion, has come to be the improvement of, the provision for physical life, and thus to seek a kingdom that is of this world, to seek satisfaction for needs of this world, and they are blind to spiritual realities and needs, the very needs that their God has been revealing to them as long as he has been speaking to them, as long as he's been leading them. This is why Jesus will say down in verse 26, You are seeking meat not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They are supposed to have seen in this massive display of creative power and authority. They're supposed to have seen that Jesus is trustworthy and is to be trusted for all of life. All of life. It's why, shortly after this, We don't have it here in John's Gospel, but when Mark is recounting this event and the very next event here, which is Jesus walking on the water, what will be emphasized there is the disciples' complete terror at the storm, their shock at Jesus protecting them. And it will explain all of that there in Mark by saying, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They understood that loaves had just been made out of nothing, that five loaves just filled 5,000 people. They understood that. They didn't understand what they were supposed to understand. They didn't learn what what they were supposed to learn from this display. It's why Jesus will make clear in the sermon coming up here in the weeks to come that not only is he the giver of life, which we saw in chapter 5, He's not just the giver of life. It's more than that. He is going to teach them that all of the ways God has provided for their lives in the past, insert manna from heaven, have been typological of him. They have all pointed to him in a way that only he is going to fulfill. When God gives life, he gives life by giving Jesus. Jesus is the life that we must have and the life that God gives. Every time he gives us life in any way, it is connected to the giving of his son. It's how John opened this gospel. John 1.4. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. They missed it all. They saw the signs, but they didn't see. My friends, if you are in Christ this morning, you have not missed it. And that's the case for you, not because of some superiority in you, a greater intellect, a greater capacity to understand. It's the case for you because God has given you eyes to see. He has given you the capacity for sight that you did not have before. We've seen this in recent weeks. That's what God gave us in Christ in this life as he's giving us life even now. God gives his children eyes to see. And he has shown us that if we have his son, if we have Jesus Christ, we have all the life that God is ever going to give to anyone. In Christ alone, we have life and that abundantly it is not a promise is it that means that so long as we remain in this world that we will be free from want or free from suffering it's a claim that we believe it's the claim that his ability to provide is limitless and that his sovereign protection and guidance over his children is certain This is the claim that we have to come back to over and over again. That we have to remind ourselves of. Sometimes on a daily basis. Isn't that the case? Arguing with ourselves, with our flesh, with our unbelief. No. He is enough. And he has promised to provide. In every situation, I can look to him and I can be satisfied. Everything he leads me through, he leads me through for a reason for a purpose. Every moment of struggle or suffering or doing without is not because he was not able to provide. It's because he is in fact providing in this very circumstance. I can trust him. We go back to it every day of our lives. And it's exactly what our Lord calls us to go back to. It's what he called his disciples to. We've pointed to the Gospel of Mark quite a bit this morning. I'll do it One more time. This is said after these events, after he has fed the five thousand, and then after on another occasion he has fed another crowd of four thousand. Both of those things happen in the sight of the disciples. And then we hear this. This is Mark eight, beginning in verse sixteen. Hear Jesus. This is my encouragement to you. This why we're reading this. Hear him chastise his disciples. Hear him chastise their lack of faith to look to him and to wait for him. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? (laughs) Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Boy, that's a word for us today, isn't it? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And when the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? He didn't respond to this by pulling more bread out of his pocket for them. He said, haven't you figured out by now that in every circumstance you are doing well, you are doing wisely when you look to me? And wait, do you not yet understand? May we be a people, because of God's faithfulness to us in our own lives, because of the record we have from his hand of the past, of his provision for his people, may we be a people who understand. That will be a people who do not walk through those moments perfectly, but it will be a people who in every of those moments where we are tempted to question to distrust, to grumble against, we will have some truth to speak back into those circumstances. Because we know what our Savior is capable of. We know the character of God himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And we know that he is trustworthy. Would you pray with me?